Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. In my visions at night, I, Daniel, saw the four winds of heaven stirring up the Mediterranean Sea. Four large animals, each one different from the others, came out of the sea. The first animal was like a lion, but it had wings like an eagle. I saw a second animal. It looked like a bear. After this, I saw another animal. It looked like a leopard. On its back, it had four wings like the wings of a bird. The animal also had four heads. After this, I saw a fourth animal in my vision during the night. It was terrifying, dreadful, extraordinarily strong, and had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed its victims and trampled whatever was left. It acted differently from all the other animals that I had seen before. Daniel, chapter 7, verses 2 through 7, God's Word Translation. I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns, seven heads, and ten crowns on its horns. The beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like bear's feet. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. The serpent gave its power kingdom and far-reaching authority to the beast. One of the beast's heads looked like it had a fatal wound, but its fatal wound was healed. All the people of the world were amazed and followed the beast. Revelation chapter 13 verses 1 through 3 God's Word Translation Hi, I'm Victoria K. Welcome to Anchored by Truth. Brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm here today with R.D. Fierro, author, founder of Crystal Sea Books, and part-time archaeologist. Well, at least if you look at some of the stuff that comes out of his desk, you'd think that some of it has been buried for a long time. Well, you can never tell when you might need an extra-long twist tie or old plastic spoon. Sure. Or an extra-large cup with a coffee stain. Anyway, let's set aside your history and return to our discussion of biblical history. I think you said that today you wanted to talk about why prophecies in the book of Daniel talked about four specific world empires beginning with the Babylonian Empire. Just to remind our audience, the prophet Daniel was himself a Jew who had been taken captive by the Babylonians probably around 605 B.C., He then spent the rest of his life, his very long life, in Babylon or in the subsequent Persian Empire, and through God's providence, he became a very senior court official in both empires. Exactly. And while he was in Babylon, God gave Daniel a series of visions about the empires that would control the Middle East and many of the countries that are adjacent to the Middle East. In chapters 2, 7, and 8 of the book of Daniel, God showed Daniel that four empires, 
starting with the Babylonian Empire, would come into the control of Palestine and would all ultimately make an important contribution to the history of redemption. In other words, for the unfolding of God's plan to redeem a people for himself. So what we want to do on today's episode of Anchored by Truth is to sketch out at a very high level how God used those pagan empires that he showed in Daniel's vision to Daniel. We want to show how God used those pagan empires as a part of his overall plan to bring the Messiah into the world and to make our salvation possible. Sounds like we have a lot of serious material to get to. So how about if we start out on a lighter note? Let's hear a bit of humor from one of the most famous episodes from Daniel's life with one of Crystal C's Life Lessons with a Laugh. This one will provide a graphic visual of the first vision of the four empires that Daniel received. Hi folks, R.D. Fierro from Crystal Sea Books, here today with... with a fantastically funny fellow who has fine features, a phenomenal physique, and fabled friendliness, Jerry. Hollow projectors activating. Wow, Jay Lovin' Jay. Been planning that for a while, have you? Well, since we're on the last life lesson of Daniel in the King of Babylon, I figured I'd do my own introduction. You know, change it up. Add a little variety. Hologram, head of gold program, loading in. Do the old ten. Switcheroo. Nine. Uh, wait, R.D.? Eight. Why are you wearing sunglasses? Seven. And why are the laser projectors starting Six. to hum? Oh, no. Five. Well, speaking of switching, J. Love and J. You might want to switch into Three. those sunglasses I put on your mic Two. stand. Sunglasses? One. What are you planning? Head of gold. 90% attenuation. 95%. Ah! <laughs> oh, man, that's bright. Whoo! RD, what in the world? It's the head of gold, J. Lovin' J. Adding torso components. Whoa, now it's growing and going up. Duh. You didn't think a statue just had a head, did you? Be right. In chapter 2 of the book of Daniel, what is the description of the statue that the king of Babylon saw in his dream? You, O king, were looking and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Oh, man, I thought you came up with some weird visions. This one's out there. Well, this vision came straight from the Lord to the king, and it's an illustration of one of the most famous examples of prophecy and fulfillment in the entire Bible. Wait, wait, is that thing going to go through the roof? Be right. Don't you think that's far enough? Finishing feet of iron and clay now. Statue envisioned by Nebuchadnezzar. Now complete. What? Never say never who? Nebuchadnezzar J. Loving J. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon from 605 B.C. to 562 B.C. He was the king who had defeated the kingdom of Judah and deported many Jewish captives to Babylon, including Daniel and his friends. You see, J. Lovin' J. My name's not J. Lovin'. Nebuchadnezzar had had this dream, which was greatly disturbing to him. Yeah, I can sympathize with that. 
Well, Nebuchadnezzar was so upset that he wanted someone to tell him what his dream meant. And when none of his wise men could help him, he threatened to get rid of them all. Oh yeah, had that feeling too. Fortunately for the wise men, Daniel knew God could reveal the meaning of the dream to him. You know, I wish I had Daniel around sometimes to tell me what you mean. Be right? What did Daniel tell Nebuchadnezzar that his dream meant? Daniel, chapter 2, verses 28 through 30. Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. After you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So, like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. Okay, all that is interesting. But what does it have to do with fulfilled prophecy? Well, J. Love and J., Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that three major empires would follow after him. And he told him that in the early 6th century B.C. From history, we now know that those three empires were the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great, and the Roman Empire. Well, Rome didn't become a world power until almost 500 years later. Well, that is remarkable. God revealed the outline of world history to Daniel hundreds of years before it occurred. Whereas I can't tell what you're going to do within the next 10 minutes. I can provide you with RD's schedule, Jay uh, that, Loving That's Jay. not necessary, B. Right? After lunch, RD is going to the movies. Wait, movies? That's why you can't help me clean out the storage room? Well, well it's a historical picture for research. Tickets for Star Blazer okay, 17 right. purchased. Coupon for now. free double butter downloaded. Well, I know someone whose belly isn't going to be like bronze. Any more info for me there, B. Wright? R.D. is meeting his friend at Fat Rack's Barbecue at 6 p.m. Terminate program. That's enough. Okay, closing out now. We're done. It's over. Thank you. Well, that's it from J. Love and J. Oh, and it's still Jerry. Sure. Still Jerry. Sure. Me, R.D., and the whole Crystal Sea Hollow crew for today. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're, we're not famous, but our boss is. Okay, now I know why you have all those artifacts in your desk. Remember, the life lessons are created for fun. Got it. Anyway, at least the life lesson did reinforce the sequence of empires that Daniel received during his visions from God, which were in order... The Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire. And you say that the biggest reason that God told Daniel about this sequence of empires was because God was going to use each of them in a particular way to accomplish his plan of redemption. Exactly. Or, as I sometimes say to Jerry, exactamundo. God raised up each of those empires for a very specific purpose, which we can now understand from our own position in redemptive history, because we live on the after side, if you will, of the resurrection. Jesus has already come, lived, died, and been resurrected. But you have to remember that Daniel received his visions more than 500 years before Jesus would even be born. So even though that Daniel had faith in God's providence and his provision, Daniel did not have the benefit of knowing how God would work out his will in history or work out his will through that particular series of empires. 
We're on the other side of Christ's time on this earth. We're on the side of history where we know that Christ has already accomplished the finished work of salvation. So we have the benefit of hindsight in looking to see how history unfolded. We have the benefit of being able to look back into history to see how God did it. So how did God work out his will through these pagan empires, starting with the Babylonians? The Babylonians were the ones that actually conquered Judea and Jerusalem and took the Jews captive for a period of 70 years. That's a seven-decade period of exile from their homeland. It's hard to see how that was part of God's will. I agree, and I definitely agree that it takes a lot of wisdom to be able to understand that sometimes God works out His will through circumstances that can look pretty bleak from a human standpoint, but He does. And of course, there's no better example of this than the fact that the worst and most evil act of all time, which was the crucifixion of Jesus, resulted in the ability for God to offer redemption and salvation to a people. And so, out of the worst act of all time came one of the greatest goods of all time, which is making salvation possible. In the case of the Babylonian captivity, God used the Babylonians to purge idolatry from his chosen people. Before the Jews became captives in Babylon, idolatry was pretty much a continuous problem in Israel, both during the period of the United Kingdom and even in the period after the split into the northern and southern kingdoms. And a lot of this, of course, can be traced or dated back to Joshua's failure to completely remove the Canaanite peoples who had occupied Palestine before the Hebrews arrived after the Exodus. You may recall that in the book of Joshua and in some of the books of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, you may recall that God had commanded Joshua and the Israelites to completely remove the previous occupants from the land. And that was in large measure due to the fact that the Canaanites worshipped idols. But it wasn't just the fact that they worshipped idols. It was the fact that they worshipped idols using some truly abominable practices, such as using prostitutes in religious ceremonies or even worshipping their idols by child sacrifice. They literally would throw their children into the fire as sacrifices to their gods. So these abominable practices obviously are inconsistent with the worship of a holy, pure, perfect, and just God. So God had commanded Joshua and the Hebrews to remove the Canaanites completely from the land. Unfortunately, we know from history that didn't happen. But as successful as Joshua was in helping the Jews resettle Jerusalem, he didn't completely fulfill God's command. And as a result, for the next 800 years, the Jews frequently flirted, in one way or another, with the idolatrous practices they picked up from their neighbors. But all that ended after the Babylonian captivity, didn't it? Yes. The books of the Old Testament that were written after the Jews returned to their homeland after the Babylonian exile contain no criticism whatsoever of the Jews for idolatry. Now, there's plenty of criticism for other sins, intermarrying with pagans, failure to build and repair the temple and maintain it properly, failure to pay their tithes and offerings. I mean, there's a lot of criticism for other sins within the restored nation of Israel, but there's no criticism of practicing idolatry. The Babylonian exile basically removed the worship of idols from the nation of Israel. The exile was obviously a drastic measure on God's part, but it did purify God's chosen people, at least insofar as the practice of idolatry was concerned. Well, that's certainly a sobering lesson for how seriously God takes our worship practices, isn't it? Yikes. All right, what about the Medo-Persian Empire? What purpose did it serve in redemptive history? 
Well, at a minimum, it did three big things. First, the Persian Emperor Cyrus began the process of returning the Jews back to Palestine. In 538 BC, Cyrus issued the decree that allowed the Jews to return to their homeland and to rebuild their temple. So, just as Jeremiah had prophesied, the Jews were in exile for about 70 years, and just as Isaiah had prophesied, a king named Cyrus came to their aid while the Jews had been exiled away from their homeland. A second thing that the Medo-Persians did was that a later Persian king, one that came after Cyrus, named Artaxerxes, issued the decree that started the time clock ticking for what I think is the most amazing illustration of prophecy in the entire Bible. And this prophecy was so precise, so amazing, so exacting in its details that I just think we have to devote a whole show to it. So on our next episode of Anchored by Truth, we're going to talk about Daniel's prophecy that's often referred to as the prophecy of the 70 weeks. Well, the Persian king Artaxerxes issued a decree that started the time clock ticking by which we can measure and be assured that that prophecy came true exactly as Daniel had foretold. And third? And third, when the Persian emperor Darius, or some people call it Darius, attempted to invade Greece, he stirred up Greek anger, and that's probably an understatement. Well, the fact that a Persian king would attack Greece and stir up the Greeks is prophesied in Daniel chapter 8. So his attempted invasion of the Greek homeland ultimately led to Alexander the Great deciding that he had to get rid of this threat. And so Alexander's conquest began by Alexander invading to the east, and that ultimately led to Alexander the Great's conquest of the Persian Empire. And of course, when Alexander conquered the Persian Empire, at that point in history, he controlled a huge territory. And ultimately, Alexander's conquest of all those other lands led to the formation of the Greek Empire. Alexander the Great conquered Persia in 334 BC. This means that the Babylonian Empire had lasted about 70 years and the Persian Empire lasted about 200 years. The Greek Empire would control Palestine until 63 BC when the Roman general Pompey conquered Jerusalem. So the Greek Empire lasted a little less than 300 years. Each empire lasted a little longer and occupied a larger territory. But what was the Greek Empire's specific contribution to God's plan of redemption? Language. Language? Yep, language. Now, of course, there were a lot of impacts of the Greek having as large and as continuous an empire as they did, but one of the single biggest outcomes of the Greeks in having an empire was that they spread their language and their culture throughout their conquered territories. And because the Greek empire lasted longer than their two predecessors, the Babylonian empire or the Medo-Persian empire, their language and their culture being present in their conquered territories had a longer-lasting impact. And in fact, this impact is more important than it might seem on the surface. I think you need to amplify that a bit. Well, I'm sort of mixing the impacts of the Third, the Greek Empire, and the Fourth Empire, the Roman Empire. But let's go ahead and do that just for sake of making a really important point. Remember that the language that was most widely spoken, even during the Roman Empire, was the Greek language. Now, of course, in Italy and in Rome, the primary language that was spoken was Latin. But throughout the vast majority of the Roman Empire, the places that Rome added to their empire that were larger than the Greek Empire, the international language of the day, the lingua franca, if you will, was Greek. 
Of course, there were local languages that were still used among the people of a particular country or region, like Hebrew was used in Palestine. But when people from different nations and different cultures communicated with one another, even during the Roman Empire, overwhelmingly, the language that the people used to speak was Greek. So what you're saying is that after Jesus' life, death, and most importantly, resurrection, when the apostles and disciples started spreading out and telling others about Jesus, the language they were speaking was Greek? And that was because the Greek language and culture had been so widespread before the Romans took over that even when the Romans controlled the government, the language being spoken by travelers like the apostles and early church leaders was Greek? Again, exactamundo. But the Greek language was important in another way, besides just being the language that the apostles and the early church fathers, as well as other international travelers, were using when they spoke to one another outside of their homelands. Let's remember that the books of the Bible that we call the Old Testament were already in existence before Jesus was born. Well, of course, those books were the books that contained the prophecies that were going to be used as part of the proof that Jesus was the Messiah. Well, of course, if you think back to it, the Old Testament, which had been written by the Jews, was written largely in Hebrew, although after the Babylonian exile, Aramaic also became a language in which some of the Old Testament books were written. So Aramaic and Hebrew were largely the original language of composition of the books of the Old Testament. But of course, neither one of those languages was nearly as widely spoken as Greek was. I mean, after a couple of hundred years of Greek occupation of various conquered territories, obviously the Greek language and culture had begun to predominate in those areas. So one of the places that the Greeks had conquered was Egypt, and one of Alexander's commanders, reminding everyone that Alexander, when he died, his own sons were so young that neither one of them succeeded him, and Alexander's empire was split among four of his commanders. Well, the commander that received Egypt as part of his kingdom was called Ptolemy. So one of the descendants of Ptolemy in the 3rd century or so B.C. asked that a Greek language version of the Torah be prepared. Well, they started the preparation of this translation with the Torah, but ultimately this translation came to include all of the books of the Old Testament, and this version of the Greek language translation of the books of the Old Testament was called the Septuagint. Septuagint literally means 70, so when people refer to the Septuagint, they're referring to this Greek language translation of the books that we call the Old Testament, named after this initial group of scholars who began the translation. And the Septuagint was the version of the scriptures that was most widely circulated when Jesus was actually alive and when the apostles first began spreading the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. In the book of Acts, when Luke writes that the noble Bereans searched the scriptures every day to see if what the apostle Paul said was true, the scriptures they were searching was probably the Septuagint. Wow! Alexander the Great's conquest of Palestine, in effect, was instrumental in the Bereans who lived well outside Palestine to not only hear the gospel, but to verify Paul's claims about Jesus when he began preaching to them. That's a pretty amazing thought. Yes, it is. And that's part of the reason that we're having this discussion on Anchored by Truth. Jesus didn't just sort of drop into history at some stray point. 
He wasn't like the tree in The Wizard of Oz dropping out of Kansas into Oz. God had painstakingly prepared the world for the arrival of Jesus, and part of his preparation for the arrival of the Messiah was this particular sequence of world empires. So that's one of the reasons we wanted to talk about this series of empires, not only because it represents fulfilled prophecy, because it helps illustrate God's control of history. Now, of course, the final empire of that series of four was Rome, and the Roman Empire was an essential concluding step for this part of the unfolding plan of redemption. Well, we mentioned last time that one of the things that Rome did in the process of redemptive history, sadly, was to crucify Jesus. And you've said that oddly, strangely, that part of their role has some dimensions people rarely think about. Sadly, it does. And this, uh, I don't want to be too morbid about it, but we have to remember that for salvation to be possible, the death of the Messiah was necessary. I mean, that's what the entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament pointed to. It pointed to the sacrifice of the spotless lamb in the Passover service. So the death of the Passover lamb was necessary. So when it came time for Jesus, who was the real Passover lamb to be sacrificed, it was absolutely necessary that there be no doubt that the death of the Messiah has actually occurred. Well, as crazy as it sounds, as crazy as it is to think about it, one of the things that the Romans were really good at was killing people. So when Jesus rose on Easter, after the resurrection, one of the things that no one at that time doubted was that Jesus had really been put to death. Today, one of the criticisms that's often leveled at the resurrection was that Jesus didn't really die, that he just sort of swooned and fainted, and when he was put in the tomb, he wasn't really dead. Well, if you had tried to make that claim in first century Palestine, you would have been ridiculed unmercifully. The one thing that the Romans knew how to do was kill people. And Jesus' death was overseen by a Roman detail that was commanded by a Roman centurion. Well, Roman soldiers and Roman centurions were really used to death. They knew what it looked like and they knew how to cause it. Now, we can be sure, absolutely positively sure, that Jesus didn't swoon or fate, but that he died because the Romans were the ones who killed him. So when the disciples of Jesus first claimed that Jesus had been resurrected, that he had come out of that tomb, One of the questions which nobody had at the time was whether or not Jesus had actually died. The Romans had ensured that Jesus was dead before he was laid in the tomb. That's not something we usually think about, is it? But for the resurrection to be real, Jesus' death also had to be real. All this proves that all history really is his story, God's history. He not only governs the affairs of men, but also of nations and even of empires. Sounds like a great time for a prayer. Today, let's pray for our first responders, the men and women within our own society who help to ensure our safety and safe travels. A prayer for first responders. Almighty, gracious, and heavenly Father, we come to you because you are a great God and a merciful God. Lord, we seek your face and your favor for our brothers and sisters who today selflessly perform jobs where they place the health and safety of others above their own. We are so grateful, Lord, that in our community and in every community in our nation, there are brave men and women 
willing to serve as police officers, firefighters, paramedics, and other first responders. We thank you for each and every one of them, and we pray that you would be their constant companion and guard. Lord, we know that they have all accepted the call to serve a cause greater than themselves. In doing so, they are following the supreme example of your Holy Son, Christ Jesus, who always placed the well-being of his followers over his own. We pray that our first responders will enjoy the blessing of knowing that you are not only their strength, but their Savior. We pray that the peace of Christ that passes all understanding would enable them to be strong in their work and service. We pray everything we do and they do would serve to bring glory and honor to your name. We thank you that you have given us a part in your great work. All this we ask in the name of your precious Son and our Lord, Christ Jesus. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.